1: Welcome to the Multimedia Cafe Week in Review. Thank you folks for pulling up a stool, joining the conversation right here at the Multimedia Cafe. A place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. We've got a fantastic program in store for you. We're going to talk with Ray Scott, Colorado State Senate District No. 7 out there in the Grand Junction area. He's talking about some of the issues with Colorado Proposition 112 and SB 181. What that means... Governor Jared Polis and the anti-fracking crusade got something through the government, if you will, and it's uh, having some impacts out there in Colorado, which of course impacts Wyoming, which of course impacts South Dakota, and with all the energy companies in Wyoming and in Colorado, we have to take a look at the Bakken in North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota. I tell you, it just it becomes a regional thing. And now that it's starting to pass in other states like uh, Oregon, it's part of the conversation. So we talk about the cult of environmentalism, recapping Earth Day to the Dapple pipelines, to Colorado's new policy, plus millennials and the industry's retirements as well. Great conversation today with Ray Scott. He's with Colorado State Senate District No. 7. Let's get right into the interview here on the Multimedia Cafe Weekend Review. My name is Jason Speece, and this is Ray Scott, Colorado State Senate District No. 7.
2: Ray Scott, Colorado State Senator.
1: Thank you for joining the program today. Very honored to have you on the program. You're a published author now. It appears on the Federalist, and that's where I got your name from, but also being Part of the legislative body that really had a firsthand account of, I believe it's Proposition 112, if my memory serves me correctly. And here on this program, of course, the people of The Crude Life know that we've been following this rise of the cult of environmentalism for about five years now. And it's been very disturbing to see how the narrative has switched to the extremes that it has. And we've used the Colorado as an example with the new rules ushering in, banning anywhere from 60 to 70 percent of the uh, drillable oil leases, depending on which study you're looking at. It's bleeding into Wyoming in terms of some of the federal leases. We've got some judges then the first time in history banning the drilling on there. Oregon just passed in their Senate I saw last week. A similar proposition that was going on in Colorado. And now you got two presidential candidates, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, actively, openly saying that they'd like to ban oil and gas activity going forward if elected as part of their platform. So um, we appreciate you coming on the program, Mr. Ray Scott, because. We're a non-political program actually. We don't get into politics. We we try to just stick with the nuts and bolts of the oil and gas industry. We joke that boy ESPN has even gotten into politics now. I can't even go to a sporting event without having to feel a certain way about the national anthem. So this we look at as what I just explained to you is is no longer politics. This is the way of life. When you got states banning it and you got presidential candidates talking about banning it I don't think they understand how much of an impact this is going to have on the change of life as we know it. So that's what kind of I just want to preface a little bit to the listeners out there what we're going to be talking about. And your article from the Federalist.com is titled Colorado's Governor Unmasks Himself as an Anti-Energy Extremist. And that just caught my attention because the first thing that popped in my head was Trojan Horse. So talk to me a little bit about your perception, your involvement, how this proposition came to be from your perspective. Because you're out there in Grand Junction, is that correct?
2: Yes, I am, Jason. Uh, And thanks for having me, by the way. I appreciate it. Uh, Yeah, you know, you you mentioned uh, the uh, uh, proposition or ballot initiative 112 that was out in Colorado. That that was actually last year. And what that that proposition was was to – to basically ban drilling because they wanted a 2,500-foot setback uh, from a a litany of of, uh, different locations. And what it did was, if you think about 2,500 feet, it it actually turns into a mile because you have to do a circumference around a location, right? So it turned into a one-mile setback, which effectively just put people out of business. So then what happened is we had Senate Bill 181 that the governor put forth this last legislative session, which of course passed because Colorado has flipped again in one of our cycles where we have democratic control throughout the entire state house. So that bill passed. Um, it's the reincarnation of one of 112, basically is what it is, just under a different title, uh, many different stipulations. But I think that what was really interesting about this particular situation was this governor, Jared Polis, who was a congressman prior to that was the father of the anti fracking movement in Colorado back in, I believe it was 2014. Of course, when he ran for governor, then he had to come out and be more moderate and he, he couldn't say those types of things, uh, or he would have had a difficult time getting elected. So he was embracing and, and saying that, you know, he would work with the energy companies and, and do all the, you know, he said all the right things. Well, 181 came along, and what we learned really, really quickly here in Colorado was he did not intend to govern like a normal governor. What he intended to do was what he learned in Washington D.C. from President Obama was let your regulatory agencies be your heavy hand, and that's what he did. So the the 181 structure is such that they wanted to call it local control to satisfy some of the Front Range folks, like you know the Boulder crowd, we call it. Um, so that they would have control over regulations, setbacks, the things that are negotiated usually with the state agency, only on a local level to make it sound like the locals now have control. But what they failed to tell people was that the state will still set the regulations, but a a city or a county cannot cannot do anything less than what the state law says. So just for a silly example, if... The state regulators say that we have to have a 2,500-foot setback from a pine tree, for example. The county, in that case, cannot come back and say, well, 500 feet's okay with us. So, you know, by saying local control, it was a massed effort uh, on his part to try to make it sound like he was being an all-inclusive governor and that we would have this local control uh, piece to our, our, our oil and gas industry. It's, it's a crushing blow. <laughs> so that, that's kind of where that whole piece came from, was in discussions. Because he, he didn't only do it with just oil and gas, but he did it with some other agencies also. And he's, he's still continuing that trend today.
1: Mr. Ray Scott, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment or two. We're going to take a quick pause. As we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Ray Scott with Colorado State Senate District Number 7. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Multimedia Cafe Week in Review. Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe Week in Review. My name is Jason Speece. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool, joining the conversation right here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. Coming up next, we continue the conversation with Ray Scott with Colorado State Senate District Number 7. So that, that's kind of where that whole piece came from, was in
2: discussions. Because he, he didn't only do it with just oil and gas, but he did it with some other agencies also, and he's, he's still continuing that trend today.
1: In your piece okay. on the, I'm sorry, in your piece on the Federalist, you talk about how uh, Governor Jared Polis, is it pronounced? Correct. Okay. He was the founding father of the anti-fracking movement in Colorado? Yes, he was. Yes, so he was. that that's pretty incredible, actually, to be the founding father. You know what I mean? That You didn't join oh, the yeah. group. You created the group. <laughs>
2: well, you know, he, he's, a, he's a very wealthy individual. Okay. You know, he has. You know, reportedly several hundred million dollars of, of his own personal wealth um, and he, he started that whole process back when we started fighting fighting that five years ago five six years ago and uh, yeah you, you would have there's a fascinating book out there that you could read if you ever had the time it's called the uh, the Colorado Blueprint and what it was is that the, the book talks about how the opposition party in my case which would be the Democrats, wrote a blueprint back in 2004 on how to take over Colorado. And I would suggest to your listeners, don't, I don't care where they're at, that they should read that book. You can get it on Amazon or someplace. It's a quick read. But it talks about how they built an organization, more like a corporation, to go out and take Senate districts and representative districts uh, from Republicans because you know we, we kind of believe in the rules. <laughs> the other side doesn't believe in the rules so much. This is interesting to
1: me because in our program, like I said, for the past five years, we've been co- we've been covering this rise and like we we call it the cult of environmentalism because, uh-huh. well, the average environmentalist. Okay, I don't know how old you are, but um, when I was a kid, there was a there was an actor named Ed Bagley Jr. and he was a crazy actor and he would drive around in a garbage powered car and he would talk about. You know biomass renewables. He was walking the walk. He'd chain himself to a tree. These types of things. I had respect for him at least. You know, I might not have agreed with everything he talked about, but the guy was driving around in a garbage powered car. More power to uh-huh. him. I don't want to do that, but good for you. Great. Sure. Sure. So well, you know, I think one but, of the things that, that but that, but I was going to say right. t- today's environmentalists they don't do that. All they do is they text and they troll and they drink their Keurig coffee and they don't actually really do much to solve the problems they just sit around and point fingers that's so we've been tracking this for a while to the tune to where we're, we're seeing almost this Orwellian type doublespeak happen and now when you mentioned Colorado blueprint boy that that just really validated what we've been trying to say here what we've been saying is that you have to take a look at the smoking ban when you take a look at like in North Dakota we had a smoking ban and happened in a lot of other states It became a blueprint, meaning that they they took the the way of public safety, public health, women and children, and you did all the right different things that'll get to the politicians and it'll get to the public, and that's how you create a ban. That's what I saw with Colorado, was I saw what they did with the smoking ban a lot, not not identical, but enough similarities to where it was a blueprint. Now that I see there's a Colorado blueprint, that's amazing to me that... um, yeah, anyway, sorry, I just wanted to validate what you were talking about to the listeners that, sure. you know, you, you and I, we, we ended up in the same place. We took different roads, but we ended up in the same place.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, really, and if, you, if, if somebody wants to read that book, what they're going to see is a group of four incredibly wealthy Coloradoans, Jared Polis, our governor being one of them, wrote this blueprint and they enacted the blueprint, and lo and behold, he's now our governor in 2018. So they're, they're, they went full circle with this. It took them, you know, 14 years to do it, but they did it. Um, and I, you know, I would suggest to your listeners that this isn't just a Colorado problem. That uh, yes, people in New Mexico, and Utah, and Wyoming, and Montana, and the Dakotas need to be concerned about these things because it's 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 a it's almost a religion, right? I mean, if these mm-hmm. these folks have. have They've learned how to hit those emotional triggers without any logic
1: whatsoever. It's, it's funny um, you use the word religion because we used the word religion up until two months ago when we started becoming a little. What we're doing is we're taking the narrative back. And one sure. of the ways that we want to take the narrative back was we had to switch the word religion to cult because, you know, religion is almost. It, all of a sudden, quickly, the argument can become about something else really quickly. Oh, and, I know. And, yeah, oh, and, and, and I know that's not what you were trying to do there and everything, but yeah. I just I wanted to point that out that, you know, actually when people go back and listen to the past interviews, and I've written stories called The Religion of Environmentalism because people are blindly following it. It is just it is incredible the way that people's passion has has risen to the like I said, the, the, we called it the religion because the only other passion that we saw that strong was religion, and so that's why yeah. we. Com- so anyway, we switched it to cult because. Oh, absolutely. Because a little more crazier. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt you on that one, but I just no, you're fine. You're I, I was fine. laughing at that, going, you know, here he used the word that we were using for a long time because it's true, <laughs> but it is, and and let's get back to the point at hand here, which is. Um, there, there is a lot of uh, misguided facts, you know, and I'll say it on both sides. However, uh-huh. the one that I believe that is really misguided is this whole this whole um, movement to ban oil and gas because it's it's done on a lot of false science and a lot a lot of um, just propaganda overall. And I don't necessarily believe that the average person has an understanding of how much involvement oil and gas has on has on a day-to-day basis from the cafe owner to the window uh dealer to the car dealer you know what i mean by that
2: oh absolutely and i think the other problem we're dealing with too is that you know again we don't know how old each other are. i'm not going to tell you because i'd embarrass myself but uh as you you look at these millennials i still haven't figured out that age bracket you know it's, it's either 18 to 30 or 18 to 50 i'm not sure what it is anymore but but uh you know, that, that group of people doesn't, they don't understand uh, that if you go back in history, not that far, you know, about 80 to 100 years, when you start talking about climate change, I actually did a speech in, in our chambers one day and, and caught all kinds of criti- criticism from that younger group because I was talking about reverse climate change because if you went back 100 years, you went back 80 years, our air quality was terrible, we had all kinds of issues with water pollution and all types of things were going on, and the oil and gas industry—you know—they'll they'll admit they were part of the problem. But look how far we've come in that last 80 years. You know, the big cities like where I have to go to Denver all the time. Used to just have a brown cloud over the top of it. It's gone. Once in a once in a while, with an inversion or something, it'll it'll pop pop up. But we have done so much within the oil and gas industry and other industries uh, to clean the air, to clean the water, to advance. All types of things: medical devices, medicines, everything that you can imagine, and, and people don't talk about that. Everybody's afraid of, of talking about the reverse effects of climate change. We're in a hell of a lot better place than we were 80 years ago.
1: Ray Scott yeah. from Colorado is our guest from the Grand Junction area. What district exactly? Uh, Senate District Seven is what we call it over. Senate District 7, Grand Junction, of course, they're a big uh, uh, natural gas provider. Is that correct? If yep. my, I, I, I love yep. Grand Junction. Actually, Rifle, I stop there usually and have lunch and sit down by the, yep. r- down by the river and yep. um, enjoy myself or Fish Hook Lake if I've got the time. Hanging, sorry, Hanging Lake. And yep. Um, yep. anyway, uh, one of the things I, I did want to mention to you is you'll get a kick out of this. I wasn't planning on bringing it up during this interview, but – uh, the Crude Life has actually sponsored uh, Johnny Green, who went on to become the Earth's champion because we loved his message. His message, he, he's, he's gone on to win the championship as the the greatest environmentalist on the planet. And uh-huh. um, his message is quite simple, that the energy industry right now is the leader of the environmental movement on the planet. And what it, what he means by that is, what we just talked about, how the average environmentalist now is a texting, trolling, which, by the way, cell phones are the number one polluter on the planet. Number two. Oh, yeah. Yeah, number two is that the oil and gas industry has done more for reclamation and the land and bringing back native plants and getting rid of invasive species than anyone else on the planet. And I'll tell you what, we love his message. So he's actually going around talking to people about it, he's got a championship belt and everything. About how, oh, about how the earth, the oil and gas industry is changing, Mr. Ray Scott. I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment or two. We're going to take a quick pause. As we come back. We'll continue the conversation with Ray Scott with Colorado State Senate District Number Seven. My name is Jason Speece, and this is the Multimedia Cafe Week in Review,
4: Gillette, Wyoming the energy capital of the nation, the Wyoming Center at the Camplex, home of the Energy Exposition 20th anniversary. June 26th and 27th, it's the longest running oil and gas trade show in the Rockies. You go there, you get exposed. Register your company for a booth now. Attendees can pre-register online and bypass the crowds. Don't miss the industry networking dinner with keynote speaker, Governor of Wyoming, Mark Gordon. And guess who else? U.S. Rep Liz Cheney, U.S. Senators Mike Enzi and John Barrasso live feed straight from the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Then Chansey Williams and the Younger Brothers Band perform live on stage. Awesome. Oh, and don't forget the Energy Symposium. Join in the panel discussions on the new regulations and procedures. Discover how new large projects are going to benefit you, Wyoming, and the Rocky Mountain region. Like to golf or just network? Then check out the Expo Golf Tourney, benefiting the Gillette College Foundation on June 25th, hosted by Energy Solutions Corp and organized by Gillette Physical Therapy. Admission to the Expo is always free and the exposure is, you know, priceless. Energy Exposition and Symposium, June 26th and 27th, 2019. And you already know, we're gonna party like it's 1999. Find out more at energyexposition.com.
1: Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe. Week in Review. My name is Jason Spees. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool, joining the conversation right here at the Multimedia Cafe—a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. Coming up next, we continue the conversation with Ray Scott with Colorado State Senate District Number Seven about how oh, about how the earth, the oil and gas industry is changing. Is saving the planet. They're the leaders of it, and that's what I meant by we're actually taking the. Par- this is a paradigm shift. We're taking the narrative back because what you're talking about is right. A hundred years ago, there was an issue, but the responsible leaders that I believe the oil and gas industry is because I, I think they're the last bastion of capitalism left on the uh, uh, in the economy. They're the last ones that not only pay their fair share of taxes and fees and and regulatory. Um, Fees, and sorry to use fees twice, but they pay more than their fair share when it comes to those things. And they usually have enough money to give to the local softball team. So they have uniforms and the church has a bake sale. They seem to always, you know, in Watford City, they just donated $200,000 to make sure that the birth wing has, has correct uh, equipment so that Watford City in their 300% growth can have, have babies now. That's another under, underreported story is how much they get taxed. And then they turn around and continue to evolve and empower communities. So yeah. that, that to me is, is some things that I, I think really get undersold. And the fact that they're now leading and becoming these environmental champions is amazing. I wanted to talk about the millennials for a second too, because, well, you hit a lot of hot buttons for, for this program, because that's another story that we've been talking about, which is 70% of the oil and gas industry will be retired by 2023. OK, that means that uh-huh. means a whole new sea change of people are going to come in. And there is a concern that mostly with the millennials, not so much Gen X, but the millennials, there has been a century of respect that has been built between the landowners, the government and the oil and gas industry. And it would be a shame to have that wiped out in five years. It would be a shame. No, and no, and no, what no, no, no. and what's happened in Colorado wyoming and oregon is is a sign that the vetting process is happening meaning that they're getting more serious now about vetting to make sure because there might be some more trojan horses out there all right go ahead your comment on this not you got you got my political ire up today i don't know man what's going Uh, on well that's you know that's the world
2: i have to live in right now operator Right? I mean, it's always about the money right so if people learn that their wallet is going to be impacted uh, in my case in Colorado the oil and gas industry brings about thirty
1: It's going to be extremely painful, and I think you don't have to look very far to see what's going to happen, especially like like Germany, you know. I mean, that's what they're trying to do is very similar to what Germany and Europe's trying to do. And yeah. um, we had Dr. Lauren C. Scott on economics, professor at Louisiana State. He's For 40 years, he's written the forecast for the state for oil and gas. He speaks on a number of different economic and energy issues, including um, – you know, BP and Exxon and that sort of thing. So the guy the guy's knows what he's talking about. And right. he's a little bit afraid right now about the natural gas thing because um, it's like 17 bucks over in Germany right now. And they actually had to fire the coal plants back up this year because they, they couldn't make it on renewables. Yeah, they got a lot of great stories and a lot of good PR, but after that happened, they got to fire up the coal plants in order to keep people happy again because – it's getting really expensive out there. Um, well, no, no question. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the renewables. Let's take the last 20 years, okay? We put a lot of subsidy money into wind. We put a lot of subsidy money into solar. Byron Dorgan, a former Democrat from North Dakota, he used to call North Dakota the Saudi Arabia of wind. And, boy, I'll tell you what, we pumped a lot of money into, into wind energy. And... I'm not a big fan of wind energy. In fact, I've been on record many times saying that. And I and I believe this is not political. This is a fact that the farmers from 100 years ago were more efficient with wind energy than we were. They went and used windmills to get water out of the ground. Good for them. We have not advanced beyond that, in my opinion. Solar, yeah, we do a pretty good job of charging some cell phones and some minor things. But beyond that, no, we haven't gotten to the terawatt of storage. Basically... All of the promises that oil, I'm sorry, that wind and solar gave us 20 years ago and 10 years ago have not come to fruition. They have failed in terms of, if, if we were doing any sort of academic grading, they would have failed. thats It's just not even arguable. They would have failed. So when I think of that, and now all of a sudden, now we got got to have a new push, so we got to spend more money at a problem that we don't have any solution to. It bothers me because... When I see what's going on with flaring, okay, flaring is a problem. And there is a lot of people that are living on well sites with these science projects. And these oil companies have paid so many taxes and so many church bake sales and so many softball uniforms and regulatory fees. They just don't have an extra couple million lying around for the science project of the week. So you're a Republican, I get that you're not a subsidy guy. I've talked to a couple other people that are not a subsidy people either, but the renewables are already getting the subsidies. My question is this: Is it time that we have the conversation to shift those subsidy dollars from wind and solar to natural gas? Because I believe it's a solvable problem in less than five years. What do you well, think?
2: Yeah, I, I, no, I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, it's 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 fascinating to me. To think of, it wasn't that long ago that there was a huge push when gasoline prices got incredibly high, uh, that there was a huge push to put vehicles on natural gas and propane. Now, in farm country up there, there's a lot of propane, so people understood that, and it's still a derivative of natural gas, so it didn't really make one difference one way or the other. Uh, and those were subsidized for a while by state governments and federal governments. And what it, what it did is, uh, it, in my opinion, it was, you know, because, The emission levels on natural gas are so much less than gasoline that it was surprising to see the net effect of what took place there. But those subsidies all disappeared because, you know, political pressure and all those things, and it shifted to wind and solar. And now here we are with wind and solar. I think there was an article today in Forbes magazine that talked about pure economics of of wind and solar, and that's all starting to be exposed. And I think as time goes on, we're going to see more exposing of those issues where it just doesn't really change. Here's a the, here's the big rub for me in Colorado. Uh, our big public utility is called Xcel Energy. Uh, they testified in front of us this last year that, you know, with wind and solar, we've now lowered our cost of a kilowatt from, from $0.09 cents to almost down to $0.02. Cents. And my immediate question to them is, why didn't you pass that on to the consumer? And, of course, you're going to hurt a pin drop in the room because that's not the plan, right? You know, they're, they're going to take the subsidies. They're going to take the extra profits. And, you know, when it's t- and, and here's what it seems like is happening. And maybe we're getting close to that threshold. I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm starting to think we are. You know, a lot of this solar stuff has been out for almost 15, 18, almost 20 years. Uh, wind power, same type of differential. All of these big utilities were able to get subsidies to put that stuff in in the first place. What happens when it wears out? Because it's going to wear out. That natural gas pipeline doesn't wear out. It just flows gas for 50, 60, 70, 100 years.
1: Mr. Ray Scott, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment or two. We're going to take a quick pause. As we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Ray Scott with Colorado State Senate District Number 7. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Multimedia Cafe Week in Review.
3: That try to behave and try not to get your mind blown.
1: Welcome back to the Multimedia Cafe Week in Review. My name is Jason Speece. Thank you, folks, for pulling up a stool, joining the conversation right here at the Multimedia Cafe, a place where you never know who you're going to run into or what we're going to talk about. Coming up next, we continue the conversation with Ray Scott with Colorado State Senate District Number 7.
2: 50, 60, 70, 100 years. But when they have to take money out of their pocket with no longer having a subsidy or to fix those, those degraded solar panels, is that where the rubber hits the road and things start to shift? I don't know, but I suspect we could have we could have a uh, we could we could have a big issue coming in in the near future.
1: Ray Scott with hey, us, state Senate District Seven in Western Colorado, the Grand Junction area. Now, Grand Junction—that is—is that primarily natural gas, or do you guys have some uh, old school wells up there cracking oil? 95 percent natural gas
2: west of the continental divide west of denver uh east of denver or i'm sorry east of the rocky mountains is oil uh but most of the natural gas we have out here is a, a very dry gas matter of fact i don't know if you've heard of this if you could google this one it's called the jordan cove project uh we're waiting on a FERC approval right now because we have the pipeline infrastructure uh, that goes up into wyoming and then goes towards oregon in a little town called Coos Bay, Oregon, they're waiting for approval to build an export facility for LNG. Uh, A good majority of that gas will flow from Western Colorado to to Coos Bay, Oregon. There's already contracts that have been signed by the Taiwanese, the Japanese, I believe the Chinese are involved, and, and, and some of the Polish bloc countries. Lithuania is interested, to your point earlier, about $17 per thousand cubic foot of gas. When natural gas in, in, in our part of the world and probably in yours as well is about three bucks mm-hmm. per thousand, you don't have to be an economics major to figure out that it's going to work. Uh, those numbers are just huge, and you know, and it's a geopolitical question too, right? I mean, how much natural gas supply do we want Russia and other countries to be supplying to people that need it? Shouldn't we be that supply to our friends versus somebody that's not their friend? Uh, Vladimir Putin's had a blast turning the valve on and off to to Poland so that they can either have fuel or they don't have fuel. Uh, I think think those are all those interesting things that kind of all connect in the the
1: cogs of the wheel that people don't think about. The the other part of this, the other part of the argument that I absolutely love is, or the part of the conversation, I should say, is... The oil companies, you know, they don't really like to talk about this too much, but all that flared gas, these mineral owners are not receiving a dime. Nope. So not imagine fine. now if the oil companies could capitalize, turn it into a profit, and that way some small business owner that, you know, 80% of the business that we know is small business, these big corporations, they can't move and be nimble and quick. They, just, they got shareholders and attorneys and stock meetings that's why they need small business to be these little science projects. So now imagine if you, if these guys had subsidy money to pay the science projects and do the R&D, and then that way the mineral owners would get paid too. So not the local people would get paid, the, the um, oil companies would get paid, and then the innovators would get paid too instead of just the same people getting the same money to produce the same ridiculous sure. Um, sure. results that aren't doing anything. That's... You know, and again, we're not a political program, but we're starting to see where there's some conversations that need to be had and there's some things that need to be pointed out. And when when, when the oil and gas industry is realistically, arguably, the number one environmentalist on the planet, I mean, yeah. we're we're loving this because we, we could actually go toe-to-toe with anybody on this. I mean, just when you actually explain the way a rig mat works to somebody, they have no uh-uh. idea. I mean... Well, to know that you can actually bring back the native fauna roots and and plants, it's like the Boy Scouts. You actually leave the, the land better than when you got there. And that oh, doesn't no happen too often. No so um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Colorado now. Um, uh-huh. The Everything I've been reading, by the way, we have Ray Scott with us uh, with the Senate in Colorado, District 7, talking about some of the changes and pontificating on some of the uh, – natural gas issues that are out there solutions but you guys your proposition 112 and I think you said was it 181 was the other one senate bill what's going on there I I, I kind of got the feeling the can was kicked down you know you guys kicked the can a little bit till next year or till the next session as far as putting some new rules and regulations in or something like that give us an update where if you're an energy company what what is it you know that's going on
2: well, basically, what they did by restructuring things with 181 uh, is they completely changed an independent commission, which was appointed by the governor, and past governors have always appointed a, an independent group of people. And you've got to have, you know, downhole, if you will, in the industry experience, and you've got to have surface knowledge uh, or environmental knowledge. And, and our oil and gas commission always used to be made up mostly of downhole because that's where most of the issues come from. Uh, What's happened is this governor has taken and appointed a whole group of people from his, his community in Boulder that are strictly environmentalists on this oil and gas commission. So what's going to happen now is they're going to rewrite all of the regulations that it relates to oil and gas, and that's going to take them much longer than I think they believe it will. And then, of course, those, those are certainly going to slant more to the environmental side, which makes it, again, much, much tougher for operators to work here. And... Uh, that's why we've had such a fight down here was the fact that you've got to have independence within an oil and gas commission or a PUC or whatever whatever agency you're talking about. So that you have some kind of reasonability and and get things right instead of leaning towards an environmental perspective, or, you know, quite frankly, leaning towards a uh a down-hole, uh, agency. So we've lost all balance in Colorado. We've lost both chambers of the Senate, or the, or the legislature. We lost the governor's office. Now we're losing all the regulating agencies, and I think that's what Polis is going to do, is he's gonna, he's gonna govern through those agencies. He'll put his hand-picked people in there, and then they will enforce regulations on whichever industry they're in charge of. And hence, the environmentalists have been in charge of our regulatory agencies, which is incredibly dangerous, uh irresponsible on his part to say the least and very dangerous for the economy here in Colorado.
1: How did the uh industry get so political? I mean, I know that when I would stay in hotels in Fort Collins, Grand Junction area, uh Denver, you know, I'd go and I'd mingle in the breakfast bar down in the morning, that sort of thing, or maybe the bar at night, you know, maybe have a spritzer or something like that and wind down sure. and um it it was amazing. People when I'd ask them what they would do or whatever, they would look over the shoulder before they say the oil and gas industry. And sure. They were in Colorado, and this was like three years ago. I started noticing that. And oh yeah, I well, it, I, yeah. I I think the
2: key the, the key thing that I would throw out there is the word lawsuit.
1: That was Ray Scott with. Colorado State Senate District Number 7. To listen to the full-length interview or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. The Multimedia Cafe is part of the Crude Life Media Network. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter. All of those social media links are available at crudelife.com That's crudelife.com. That's going to do it for today's program. I'd like to thank you folks for joining us here on the radio. And for those of you streaming us here on the internet. Thank you very much. And if you've downloaded our podcast on iTunes or one of the other platforms, thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll be back next week at this time on this radio station, but for everybody else, that's going to do it this week. I'd like to thank you folks for joining Ray Scott and myself as we kind of recap some of the best interviews we did in the past week, but that thing going on in Colorado is so important, we had to devote this entire Multimedia Cafe Weekend review to it. From the staff here at the Multimedia Cafe, my name is Jason Speece, asking you to savor life and enjoy the spice.
3: Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects. Groundbreaking, with construction resuming in early 2019. The Davis Refinery. Jason
0: Speece, the most trusted voice in the Bakken.
1: I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts.